Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome, history friends, patrons all, to episode 1.11 of 1956. Last time we saw how Matyash Rakoshi, otherwise known as Asshead, watched his bubble burst as the death of Stalin punctured the carefully pumped balloon of the wise leader, guiding his fortunate people to enlightenment. With the image severely tarnished, and Rakoshi forced to share power with the courageous, but otherwise unremarkable Imre Naj, the stage looked set in 1953 for a great transformation in the People's Republic of Hungary, even before the famous de-Stalinization speech so altered matters three years later. In this episode, we run through those interim years and explain what was tried, what worked and what didn't, and then see how, just as Rakoshi began to believe he had a handle on things again, the old status quo was shattered by the secret speech. It's a fascinating story, history friend, and I'm very happy to have you with me for it. So let's get into it as we go to summer 1956. Imre Naj, as ever, had an important job to do. One would be justified in asking why Moscow decided the time was right in 1953 to pluck Naj out of the semi-retirement he had grown accustomed to and to plonk him atop Hungary's greasy pole, balancing unsteadily with Rakushi's monopolization on power. Well, to begin with, Imre Naj wasn't a Jew, which struck the Kremlin leaders as something of a breath of fresh air for Hungary, yet this latent anti-Semitism wasn't the only motivating factor. Naj had a reputation as an honest man, as the historian Victor Sebastian noted, and he could be relied upon thus to follow through with the destalinization reforms in Hungary before such an approach became official policy from 1956. Yet because Naj had demonstrated an independent mindset in the past, particularly in regard for pushing for handing land to the peasantry instead of just collectivizing everything, he couldn't be totally trusted to sycophantically toe the line at every opportunity, as Matyas Rakoshi could. Thus, Imre Naj was brought in as Prime Minister to reform the system that Rakoshi had built, and Rakoshi's very presence ensured that Naj wouldn't take the process too far. 
This, in a nutshell, was the thinking process behind the curious collective leadership system in Hungary. While the post-Stalin circle claimed that Hungary should possess a collective leadership akin to Moscow, the reality was that all within Moscow were already placing their bets. Lavrenti Beria's presence in the meeting was one of his last acts as interior minister. By the end of 1953, he would be dead, and Malenkov would follow Beria, at least insofar as losing the vast bulk of the influence he once held. This left just Molotov, who would be consistently discredited over 1954 and 55, resigning as foreign minister in mid-1956. Khrushchev, of course, was the last man standing, and he must have known that in a system like the Soviet Union, no political rivals could countenance sharing power for long. He would later admit that placing Naj and Rakoshi together and expecting them to get along had been a bit of a mistake, but even Khrushchev seemed to underestimate the sheer volume of resentment which Rakoshi came to hold against Imre Naj. Naj was tasked with removing the worst excesses of Stalinism, but still retaining the key edifice, Yet he was undermined at every turn by Rakoshi, who on a few occasions even sent armed officials to interrupt any agricultural reforms which Naj attempted to implement. Overall, the so-called new course in Hungary, that country's counterpart to Moscow's pre-1956 thaw, failed to make much of an impression. It did start off well at first, though. The AVO were restricted, reducing the fear felt by the citizenry in Hungary, and foreign radio and newspapers were allowed into the country, opening it up to the outside world, at least to a limited degree. Some late-night clubs were even opened, offering the irresistible attraction of American jazz well into the night. Hungarian citizens, eager for a taste of genuine culture, unfiltered by party dogma, flocked to these establishments, to the extent that Rakoshi later argued that Naj had gone too far too fast. The Kremlin leadership, unwilling to accept mistakes and admit that Naj had only been following their orders, concurred. Only a year after his appointment then, Imre Naj was on borrowed time. A great example of one cause of friction between the two Hungarians was the issue of releasing political prisoners. As we've seen in past episodes, the tricky issue of the political prisoner who populated the Soviet gulag in their hundreds of thousands was an equally fraught problem for the satellites, who possessed their own gulag systems and ways of dealing with dissent. In Rakoshi's mind, it was imperative that these prisoners not be allowed out, or else they would speak against him and undermine him in comparison to Naj's cleaner record. So, the solution for Rakoshi was to stuff the review boards tasked with examining the prisoners' cases with his old cronies to ensure that the whole process stalled. Khrushchev called both men to Moscow in spring 1954 in a bid to kind of arbitrate between the two of them. Khrushchev himself was under no illusions as to why the prisoner issue was so slow in coming to a resolution, as he later recalled, Rakoshi is responsible for these arrests, therefore he does not want to release these people. He knows he is guilty and will compromise himself. It is not permissible to denounce men and throw suspicion on them. The rehabilitation should be carried out, so as not to destroy Rakoshi's authority. Note Khrushchev's correct interpretation of Rakoshi's behaviour, twinned with the incompatible desire to refrain from undermining Rakoshi too much. It didn't seem to occur to Khrushchev in the beginning that by taking apart the Stalinist system, Rakoshi would also be taken apart. Regardless of their misgivings and his genuine terrible errors in policy, Rakoshi remained Moscow's man in Budapest, and Naj's world became increasingly small as 1954 progressed, 
and the power sharing experiment appeared to fail. One is drawn to the example of December 1954, when a nauseating spectacle took place as the Hungarian Communist Party celebrated a decade of liberation under the Soviet Union. As both figures made their rehearsed speeches, Naj was by no means about to criticise the Red Army's behaviour, at least not yet. The First Secretary and the Prime Minister settled down to a meal that evening. The impression was clear. At two different tables, the two figures sat with their supporters. Naj's base consisted of intellectuals, writers and journalists, while Rakushi, who was in a great mood by the way, had surrounded himself with party stalwarts. Imre Naj may well have had his admirers, but Rakushi's influence was evidently too entrenched and too terrifying to publicly oppose, especially when it couldn't be guaranteed that Naj would be there to stay, what if one backed the wrong horse? As both tables stared at one another, the message was clear. This town wasn't big enough for the two of us. This is not what we told you to do! came the angry Russian voice as an incriminating dossier was slammed on the hard wood table. It was January 1955, and the two Hungarian leaders had been called to the Kremlin once again. This time, though, it was Imre Naj's head on the chopping block. The mission was to blame everything on Naj. The failures of the new course in Hungary, the underwhelming performance of the agricultural reforms, and the negative impact of foreign capitalist elements, which Naj had allowed enter into the country, These were all upheld as incriminating pieces of evidence. The dossier purported to show that Naj had failed in every aspect. Unlike the supplicant Matyash Rakoshi though, who was sitting smugly beside his rival by the way, Imre Naj was not willing to stay quiet. Perhaps it was the rampant hypocrisy, perhaps it was the exhaustion brought on by the months and months of pretending, but Imre Naj just couldn't take it anymore. When he was criticised severely for his shortcomings by his former ally, Georgi Malenkov, Naj replied that If it is true that there are still problems in Hungary, these are the inevitable heritage of my predecessors. In response to this self-defence, the richly ignorant line was given by Malenkov that Naj had not kept before his eyes the magnificent example of the Soviet collective farms. Magnificent, as in, yeah, had caused millions of deaths in the Ukraine, just so you know. Naj was unable to take this ridiculous medicine. You made not a few mistakes of your own when you formed your collective farms, he exclaimed. The leadership was silent for a moment, and we imagine the Russians looking at one another, as if stunned that a vassal could speak to them in this manner. The scene was cooled by a changing of the subject, but Imre Naj's stand was never forgotten. Naj should be careful, Khrushchev said later to Milenkov and Mikoyan. In former days, I have had better men than him put to death. Naj returned to Budapest in late January 1955 with a jubilant Matyas Rakoshi, and he must have known deep down that his days were numbered. In fact, the stress of the incident caused Imre Naj to suffer a mild heart attack, and it was when he emerged from hospital in March of that year that he learned of a coup underway against him. Rakushi had begun the coup by calling the party officials together and denouncing Imre Naj's activities. Naj, who was coalescing in his Budapest home, which has since been converted into a museum to his life, by the way, could not answer to defend himself, obviously. Rakushi awaited the news that Naj would begin the familiar process of self-criticism 
and then fade back into obscurity. This time, though, such news never came. Imre Naj refused to denounce what he had done. The June Road, another name for the new course underway in Hungary, is the way, the only way, to save communism in Hungary, Naj told reporters. I will not say it is an error. The significance of this public stand against the party did more than any other act in Naj's life to catapult him into the people's favour. The notion that a party official would stand against that party's ridiculousness was so novel, such a fresh concept, that people even at this early stage began to flock to Naj's banner, offering him gestures of support even if they couldn't save his career. If he had done what was required of him, noted Eva Walko, an ardent anti-communist who also happened to be an admirer of Naj, he would probably have been given a sinecure somewhere, an office, maybe even a car, and been allowed to perform minor services for the party, but the people would never have given him a second thought afterwards. He salvaged his reputation, his honour and his pride. My opinion of Imre Naj is that he was a thoroughly decent person, almost too honourable for me to consider him a politician, noted a former Hungarian ambassador to Romania, Jeno Zsel. By the time Rakoshi's counter-attack on him began, I'd have followed Naj through fire and water. Indeed, even while Naj was not a charismatic figure, it was his integrity that shined unmistakably through his drab appearance and thick moustache. Those among the party fearful of a Stalinist backslide, as Rakoshi greedily took the party reins back, flocked to Naj's banner. Rakoshi dealt with this problem in the only way he knew how. Naj was lampooned in the Hungarian state press, prevented from getting any decent job, and most painfully of all for the passionate communist, he was expelled from his own party. This didn't mean he would fade away though, convinced that Rakoshi would one day be removed and that he would be called back to finish what he started, Naj maintained a public profile in Budapest, as one resident recalled at the time that he travelled by bus, always cheerful and with a pleasant word to say, always approachable. At weekends, he was regularly seen at Gerbuds, this is Budapest's most famous cafe, feeding ice cream to his grandson. He just seemed so ordinary. We were not used to politicians like him. Yes, he was a communist, but we knew, everyone knew, that he had stood up to Rakoshi. Unfortunately for Rakoshi, he was unable to do anything about Naj's very public personality complex because Moscow had significantly tightened the leash since the last time he held the reins. Rakoshi was still allowed to use the AVO as his police, but any arrests of high-profile figures was forbidden, and Rakoshi was forbidden from executing any such figures either. In short, not only did this approach between 1955 and 56 allow Naj to stay alive and relevant, it also provided the circumstances where an unofficial opposition could operate. So long as they moved and act intelligently, their members couldn't be done away with as before. This opposition never billed itself as such, but it took advantage of Naj's popularity and of the vague definition of what a communist writer was allowed to publish, to undermine Rakoshi's credibility and to make clear that underneath his iron grip lay a corrosive group of anti-Stalinist figures determined to topple the regime. One example was found in Hungary's Literary Gazette, which released 40,000 copies a week. The Gazette was a compilation of Hungary's writers, who wrote pieces and columns which seemed to think out loud on the country's current situation. 
In addition, books of the borderline band and even sometimes the band variety would be discussed at length and their contents debated within the Gazette's pages, a fact which led to an inspiring site after the 40,000 copies were sold, which always occurred within the first hour of them hitting the shelves. There was a desperate hunger for decent writing that told the truth, remembered one resident. That is a deep need in Hungary and always has been. One of the reasons we hated the Soviets so much was that they took our literature away from us. This latent threat only served to make Rakoshi more oppressive, more paranoid, that he would be sacrificed to the wolves or that he would have to travel to Moscow and be browbeaten yet again. Yet under his restrictions, the editor of the Gazette was only demoted. He wasn't jailed, put on a public trial or executed as would have occurred in the past. Hungarian citizens were initially puzzled by the hesitation, but before long they recognised it for what it was, a kind of cultural and national awakening led by intellectuals. That was the point when anger replaced fear among so many of us, recalled a native journalist. The writers became more emboldened. In late October 1955, they signed a petition insisting that the party stop restricting its members in the writers' union from writing what they wanted. Essentially, it was a petition calling for an end to state censorship. Rakoshi confronted the problem only in early December 1955 and demanded that the writers withdraw their petition and go back to their lives. We do not give writers a free pass, Rakoshi insisted. The 59 signees of the petition, though, refused to back down, and Rakoshi did keep his cool, writing a list of those writers who he planned to arrest in the future when affairs had calmed down. He surely assumed that in a few weeks, Moscow would respond to the unruly situation and clamp down as was appropriate. Instead, what Rakoshi got was a shot between his beady eyes in the form of the secret speech. Of all the leaders of the satellite states who depended upon Stalin's cult of personality model, Rakoshi was perhaps the most egregious example. In the first place, the previous year had seen Rakoshi be consistently undermined, but the first secretary had assured himself and his circle that this would soon change, since it had to if Moscow wanted him to remain in place. The de-Stalinization speech on the evening of the 24th of February 1956 shattered all these expectations, though and presented fresh problems to Rakoshi and his deteriorating hold on power. Khrushchev's speech let forth a tsunami of feeling into Hungary, where Naj's new course had taken the form of a controlled opening of a dam. Rakoshi's credibility, as much as the secret tentacles through which he maintained his grip on power, were all fatally undermined. How could Rakoshi go along with the act and denounce the cult of personality of Stalin when he had sought to craft his own one in previous years? To those Hungarians taught to fear the Avo, it now seemed that even the notorious secret police were running scared, convinced that they would be caught up in the emotion of the moment and lynched as symbols of the old order. Just how far did Khrushchev plan to go and what was he thinking? What had he been thinking? As we've seen in previous episodes, Khrushchev was thinking about containing the fallout from the release of so many gulag prisoners, as much as he was attempting to hoard credit for the reforms for himself when he stood before his peers and subordinates and delivered that secret speech. He evidently had spared little thought for how events would proceed in Poland, which we've examined, but surely in Hungary he must have known that his words would cause no end of problems for Rakoshi, who was already stuttering through the problems caused by a gradually awakening populace. 
This populace was fed on a rich diet of composers, plays, books and political discussion from March 1956 to a degree not known in living memory. Truth was emerging on a scale never before seen in Hungary. The historian Victor Sebastian makes the point that when Shakespeare's Richard III was no longer banned and crowds flocked to see the performance, it was hard to see the isolated, ugly king Richard III as anything other than a metaphor for Matthias Rakoshi. Rakoshi was essentially left adrift to deal with the fallout as the aid from Moscow he expected never materialised. By the late spring, the reactions against his regime were proceeding like a snowball down a deep hill. Rakoshi couldn't have been ignorant to the fate of Bulgaria's little Stalin, Vulko Chervenkov, who had resigned in mid-April 1956 after trying to cling to power. Rakoshi, like Chervenkov, owed everything from his cult to his power base to Stalin's example. Yet in the Bulgarian case, Rakoshi could at least claim that his was different. Chervenkov's removal had been motivated above all by the intense hatred that Tito held for him, since one of the items on the to-do list in the de-Stalinization era was an improvement of relations with Tito, Bulgaria's leader was thrown under the bus without a second thought. In fact, Moscow had even ensured that a Yugoslav delegation was present in Sofia to see Chervenkov's humiliation firsthand. Rakoshi could thus console himself with the notion that he wasn't hated by his neighbours. Yet he must have known deep down that he was despised by pretty much everyone else. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hey, it's Sharon, and here's where it gets interesting. Raise your hand if you want salon perfect nails for just $2 a manicure. Yeah, me too. With the Alvin June Manny system, you can say goodbye to expensive services that take hours and hours and love your nails more than ever. I would know I've been doing it for years. Get 20% off your first Manny system with code PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. That's PERFECTMANNY20 at alvinjune.com slash PERFECTMANNY20. The last week of March 1956 had been particularly trying. In his efforts to distance his regime from that of Stalin's, Rakoshi tried to emphasise the Leninist aspects of his reign, and pointed to Gabor Peter, the man he had arrested in early 1953 on trumped-up charges, as responsible for misleading the party in the past. Unable to live past errors down, Laszlo Reich's skeleton was even brought out of the closet. Reich, you may remember, was one of the first figures purged from the party in 1949. Reich was absolutely no saint, and he had played a key role in establishing the country's secret police and sending many thousands to prison or the gallows. Yet, Reich was better than Rakoshi in an important way. He was a native Hungarian who hadn't spent decades abroad in Moscow and become a Muscovite in the process. 
Laszlo Reich, the idea went, wouldn't have kowtowed to Moscow as much as Rakushi insisted on doing. Now Rakushi tried to claim that the incorrect murder of Reich had been Gabor Peter's idea, a man who remained in prison, but nobody bought it. While in a party meeting for several leaders in one of Budapest's poorest districts, a 27-year-old history teacher spoke directly to Rakushi as he stood on the podium. A comrade, Rakushi, the Hungarian people no longer trust you. The teacher was not arrested, and Rakushi had been forced to absorb the fatal blow. It was destined to be the first of many, as Ashead's world came crashing down. In late June 1956, Budapest's Officers Club hosted a special event filled with people from across Hungary's political and intellectual world. In the atmosphere of optimism and bravery, rumour had it that at this meeting, a move would be made against Rakushi and he would be publicly denounced by those present. The most notable speech above all was given by a woman named Lajlón Georg, but this was merely the name given to her by Hungarian authorities. Her real name was Julia Reich, and she had more than a few grievances to air before the crowd that was assembled before her. She said, I stand before you deeply moved after five years of prison and humiliation. Let me tell you this, as far as prisons are concerned, Horthy's jails were better, even for communists, than Rakoshi's prisons. Not only was my husband killed, but my little baby was torn from me. For years I received no letters and no information about the fate of my son. These criminals have not only murdered Laszlo Reich, they have trampled underfoot all sentiment and honesty in this country. Murderers should not be criticised, they should be punished. I shall never rest until those that have ruined this country, corrupted the party, killed thousands and driven millions into despair, received their just punishment. Comrades, help me in this struggle. The public airing of the Reich injustice had the effect of covering up Reich's genuine crimes and complicity in the party's worst excesses, but it also served as a symbol for every politically driven purge and every ridiculous contradiction that had been sponsored by Rakoshi. If Laszlo Reich was innocent, then what did that say about the 1.3 million Hungarians estimated to have suffered some kind of misfortune under Rakoshi's rule? Julia Reich's speech had taken place at an event organised by a new group on the block, the so-called Potofi Circle, a debating group established by a young cadre of communists named after the Hungarian poet and martyr Sandor Potofi, who died during the 1848 revolution whilst fighting against the Russian invasion. The similarities and symbolism were unmistakable. While the Russian-Soviet invasion was only threatened, the Potofi Circle was determined to fight against the latent influence of the Red Army and the lingering threat of force. They were determined to do this by providing the most effective and public forms possible for debating political issues, which drew crowds in excess of anything Hungarians had seen before. The Potofi Circle, arguably more than any other body, profoundly affected the direction and force of the building discontent in Hungary. On the 7th of July 1956, Potofi Circle figures organised a debate on the concept of the free press, and over 6,000 Hungarians sat outside the building where the debate was taking place until 4 in the morning, listening all the while to the loudspeakers which communicated what was being said inside. When one of Imre Naj's old friends spoke about his experience in Avo torture and the treatment of Naj the previous year, 
a ripple began moving through the 6,000 people present. It was a chant speaking of a single name. Imre, Imre, Imre. Back in Moscow, Anastash Mikoyan was tasked with solving Rakoshi's problem with instructions from Khrushchev to lance the boil. When he was collected from the airport in Budapest on the 13th of July in a car which also carried an eager Rakoshi, Mikoyan wasted little time getting down to brass tacks. The Soviet leadership has decided, Mikoyan said, that you are ill. You will need treatment in Moscow. As Rakoshi digested this bitter pill on the journey to the Hungarian Communist Party's HQ, its core message was repeated again. The Potofi Circle was brought up, and Rakoshi condemned them as traitors. That's interesting, replied Mikoyan. In Moscow, we've heard that the party has been repeatedly acclaimed at Potofi Circle meetings. That sounds like a remarkable bunch of enemies of the party. If the injection of sarcasm into the debate by Mikoyan seems out of place, then it must be borne in mind that the Potofi Circle was not a revolutionary group. Their aim was to restore Hungary through communism and to fix the party and country's problems through several reforms. Mikoyan's comment demonstrates that it had already been agreed in Moscow that Rakoshi was the problem, rather than the Hungarians themselves. Had he been more in tune with the populace and less oppressive, such circles would never have seen the need to materialise at all. Only the most radical underground elements by this point were upholding the need to overthrow everything which had been set in place from 1945. For the moment at least, the Soviet satellite was troubled, but it was secure. This state of affairs would be completely reversed within less than four months. The man designated to replace Rakoshi was his right-hand man up to this point. Ernest Singer was tall, with a wad of brown curly hair, and suffering from an untreatable stomach ulcer which caused him immense pain at given intervals. Singer followed Rakoshi's lead by renouncing his Jewish background and becoming Erno Gero at the turn of the century, in return cutting off all contact from his large family and following Rakoshi to the Soviet Union in the interwar years. Gero was thus a Muscovite, and was just as reactionary, hardline, and out of touch as his predecessor. While Rakoshi left his considerable mess to his Vulpine successor, and Gero would indeed take much of the blame for what followed, Gero would demonstrate equal cluelessness, arrogance, and complacency in the months to come. Khrushchev would later claim that, If ten or so Hungarian writers had been shot at the right moment, the revolution would never have occurred. Yet Khrushchev was also responsible for chronically misjudging the situation, and for believing that by replacing one hardline unpopular Muscovite with another, the situation would just somehow resolve itself. Matyas Rakoshi was gone, never to return to Hungary again, and sentenced, essentially, to an exile of worsening conditions for the remainder of his life. He died in 1971. For the next few months, Erno Garo engaged in the bizarre practice of travelling to the Crimea for extended vacations, as though he refused to admit that any kind of storm was brewing, and he also refused to do anything about it. Khrushchev behaved as though he was disappointed, but he really should have expected as much from a man who had learned so much from Rakoshi. Had the appointment of someone like Imre Naj been made, all the bloodshed which followed 
could likely have been avoided. As it was, Khrushchev swapped one tyrant for another. Victor Sebastian judges the appointment of Gero as an example of Khrushchev's erratic and limited willingness to actually properly implement the tenets of his own reforms. While we would sweep away Stalin to a degree, he still wished to depend on the late foreign secretary's disciples out of fear, perhaps, that only men in that image could retain the iron grip over a satellite which was necessary. He would learn his lesson in time, but too late for Hungary's people. As Mao Zedong himself put it when talking about Khrushchev, Khrushchev walked on two legs. One is boldly striding into a new era, the other is hopelessly stuck in the mire of the past. Perhaps in an effort to bury the past, literally, the corpse of Laszlo Reich was exhumed and reburied in a bizarre ceremony on the 6th of October, 1956. As if on cue, the heavens opened on the hundreds of thousands of Hungarians lining the streets, and it soaked the heads of those party figures, carefully marching to the new tune of anti-Stalinism. As Stalinism's prime victim, Laszlo Reich's reburial was seen by party figures as a chance to move on from the past and embrace a new future. But this picture was as brittle as the goods made in Hungary's countless factories. Arno Garo didn't even bother making an appearance for the funeral, because he remained in the Crimea on holiday. When he returned, he left again on the 16th of October to journey to Belgrade and talk with Tito in a bid to patch things up. These untimely trips didn't exactly endear him to his peers or to Khrushchev, who had tasked Garo with fixing Hungary, not ignoring it. What little efforts Erno Garo did make, the releasing of social democrats from prison, the removal of Rakushi's name from several buildings, and the acquiring of some trade credits from Moscow, did little to improve the mood or solve the problems which were becoming ever more pronounced. As Erno Garo plodded along, the harvests remained poor, coal remained in short supply, and the transportation services of the country pretty much ground to a halt in response. The revelations provided by the Potofi Circle in their many presentations had convinced many Hungarians that the Soviets were unfairly exploiting Hungary and stealing its resources, particularly its uranium, and all at knockdown prices. The revelations and involvement of the Soviets in such activities and the lack of any evidence the Hungarian leadership could provide of the benefits to Hungary, save for the usual platitudes, exacerbated this discontent. Demands for the Soviets to leave, and for their soldiers to leave as well, became more common. Anti-Soviet messages were sprayed in abundance on railway carriages, on the sides of highly important buildings, and even on certain pavements, even though the punishment for such acts was infamously harsh. The AVU remained a key bone of contention, to put it mildly, but because Rakoshi was no longer in place to control it as he had done during its most terrifying years, Hungarians as a whole felt less constrained to make their voices heard. At the end of the Reich funeral, for example, certain dissidents had publicised their discontent by marching in a number of about 500 to the Bathyany monument in Buda. This monument was dedicated to the first Prime Minister of Hungary, who had been elected by the city's populace during the chaos of the 1848 revolutions before being summarily executed by the Austrians. The memory and legacy of 1848 remained strong in Hungary's proudly erected monuments and national history, and the events of 1848 were soon to have an important parallel with those of October 1956, the main parallel being 
the presence of Russian soldiers in overwhelming numbers to put the reaction down. News from Poland sparked even greater calls for action, for the sake of solidarity with their Polish neighbours, if nothing else. In particular, Władysław Gomułka's example of achieving limited sovereignty for Poland within the Soviet bloc was encouraging to Imre Naj and the group of Hungarians who had gathered around him. Naj was allowed back into the party on the 13th of October 1956, and up to that point had been highly resistant to any suggestions that Hungarians should acquire their independence, or that he should acquire his political satisfaction outside of the Communist Party's line. Naj remained, for some time, a loyal member of the party, and he would not countenance any disobedience of its edicts. In time this would change, but Naj thought no harm would be had by travelling to his favourite wine region in Hungary on the 21st of October for a short break, returning only in the morning of the 23rd of that month. By that morning, the tension could be cut with a knife. Both Imre Naj and Erno Gero were made aware upon their returns that Hungary's students, perhaps you could say the most pampered group of all in Hungary, were planning a march from both sides of the city. As if in emulation of the Polish model, Hungary's students seemed to want to control the debate, first by making clear in their thousands exactly what was wrong with their country, and then what needed to change. Revolution was by no means on their lips, but some other qualities were. Bravery, disillusionment, and an eagerness to bring about genuine, lasting change. A more skilled or informed leader might have taken steps to disarm this march before it even moved, by easing the students' grievances before the march began. Erno Garrow, of course, was not such a leader, and he did no such thing. He could offer the students only condemnation, and would propose only the use of brute force as a solution to their march. At 3pm on the 23rd of October 1956, thousands of students set out from Buda and from Pest to meet in the middle of the so-called Bern Square, where a martyred Polish general serving the Hungarians in 1848 was memorialised. By the evening, the student demonstration had transformed into the first, most defiant and most disorganised revolt against Soviet authority in history. Contrary to Erno Garo's promises and Imre Naj's wishes, their country had erupted into rebellion. Next time, we'll resume this incredible story by tracing the progress and examining the fate of this revolt. I hope you'll join me then, my lovely patrons and history friends, and I hope you have been enjoying the story here as much as I have enjoyed researching it and presenting it to you. Until next time, though, my name is Zach, and this has been 1956, episode 11. Thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all soon. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher.